Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics Chat. My guest today is Michael Love. Mike is an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And uh, there is a good chance you know him as the author of DSIG2, which is one of the uh, more popular packages for uh, differential gene expression analysis. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's a, I really enjoy listening to these, so it's, it's a pleasure to be here today. Awesome. And uh, let's maybe start with your uh, background. So how did, you, how did you start your career in bioinformatics? Yeah, so I was, um, I think when I first became interested in, in genetics and, and bioinformatics, I was doing a master's in statistics at Stanford. And um, some of the courses touched on computational biology and bioinformatics. And I did an internship over the summer at um, a microarray lab at UCSF. Um, so it was the lab of Prescott Woodruff, and they were looking at um, RNA expression in um, patients with asthma and smokers and then non-smokers. And that was incredibly interesting to me that you could uh, see differences in uh, across patients at the, at the gene level. So then I, from there, um, I, I thought, well, this is, you know, where I want to apply statistics. And so I looked into uh, computational biology PhD programs. Mm -hmm. And uh, which one did you find? It was it's kind of funny. Like it was very directly from, I, you know, I, when I was in my, in this internship and also other, other times during the, um, this master's program, I, I had used a lot of bioconductor packages. So, you know, I was, I was already kind of in this, um, in this space of thinking, well, I like that there are people who are statisticians who are developing software and, and then making it broadly available. So I, I was kind of already clued into bioconductor as an, as a way for methods to be pushed out. And then, so I think the way I found the lab that I was interested in was I looked up one of the packages that I'd used in the, that summer. Um, and so it was, it was the, you know, among other packages, there was like this variant stabilization package that came from, uh, from Wolfgang Huber was uh, first author and Martin Vingren was the last author. So like I, I, I zeroed in on the Vingren lab and saw that they had a computational biology PhD program, um, which was like uh, supported by the Max Planck institutes. And so that, I, that was, that ended up being like one of the ones that I was most interested in. And then I, I applied there and um, interviewed and got in. And you mentioned Bioconductor and uh, I don't know if, Everyone is uh, aware, um, everyone is familiar with uh, what that is, so maybe let's explain that. Sure, sure. So um, it's, a, it's a number of things. I'm teaching computational biology right now at UNC. So I think a couple of weeks ago I had this talk. It's like, it's a lot of things, you know, many people might know it as a repository for R packages. So it's an alternative place where you can download R packages. Um, but it's a project that goes back, I guess, like, more than 16 years now um, that was, you know, started by a bunch of statisticians, uh, academic, I think it's primarily academic statisticians who are interested in um, writing code that could work together. So like each person works on their own method, but if, you know, if we agree upon some like data structures, then we can more easily have our, our, our packages work together. And I think it was predominantly like microarray was the, driving force behind wanting the packages to integrate. 
so it's a group of, you know, it's a project. It's a group of people that, um, that work together. And then it's also a funded uh, project. So there, there are um, U grants from the NIH and, and elsewhere. Now it's broadened its funding that, um, that helps support the project and allow there to be not just the, the individual developers writing packages, but there's also a core team that kind of supports the core set of packages that provide algorithms and infrastructure that's kind of like foundational. Were you already predisposed towards R from your uh, statistics program? Yeah, so there, let me think. There was, in statistics, it, it was pretty much all R. There was like, um, you know, like among the professors there, like, you know, people like uh, Hasty and Tipsharani and Efron and, and writing R, a lot of R packages. So there's always a lot of open source development in R. And then I had taken a class taught by Naris and, and, and John Chambers, like my, my, my computing, my statistical computing class was taught by one of the people, the pe person who invented S like the predecessor to R. So it was, it was yeah, pretty heavy, heavily like slanted towards R. I don't think there was any Python in my, in my master's program. Have you ever regretted throughout your career? Have you ever considered like going, like jumping, um, across the fence? <laughs> I've, I've been, uh, I think Python is well. I, I now that I'm teaching, I, I mean, R is not very easy to. Um, there, there, there are definitely like uh, because it's it, it's created by lots and lots of different people, and there's not like a maybe less of a top down um, design structure. Like arguments, argument names are very different across packages because people dif you know, have different preferences for that. So it is it, it does there is aspects that makes it more difficult for teaching. Um, where I think I could imagine it being a lot easier to get people started with Python. Um, I think also that, you know, one one place where it's clear that there's a lot of um, uh, at appeal to Python is with the single cell community. So a lot of the like key single cell processing and analysis packages are, are Python, are, are coming from Python. So, you know. Maybe because of the machine learning influence. Yeah. Oh, and of course. And, and yeah, and also for like deep learning. Um, so... And so you know, at UNC, the biostat students that get into um, deep learning will uh, will often like, you know, a, a substantial part of their research is done in Python. So you went to do a PhD at Max Planck. And uh, was uh, was that where you worked on DSIG2? So um, I did, I, I, I worked in the Vingren lab predominantly. I also had a, a spot in Knut Reinert's group at Freie Universität in the informatics. Um, and and for, I guess, like the first two and a half years of my PhD, I was looking, I, I was mostly working with sequencing data and, and I had noticed the, uh, the Huber group in Heidelberg um, at EMBL. And, and so I was really lucky, I think, that I was in a position where I could, I, I asked uh, Martin, my, my, um, my primary advisor at that time, if I could like go go study for some months, like as a visitor to the to the Huber Group in Embel in Heidelberg, so that was like I was down in Heidelberg just as a visitor, um, and then that that ended up that was like one of the chapters in my dissertation. So I started my PhD in 2010, and the um, you know the idea of sequencing the um, 
the cDNA. So, so like we're interested in measuring the RNA in, in samples and, and previously like what I had done in my, in my, in my master's program was look at microarray measurements, which are these continuous values, basically like the intensity of a fluorescence uh, from probes on an array. Then in, in between that time, between my, my master's when I started my PhD, there, the um, papers had come on around 2008, which showed that you can, you know, you convert the RNA to um, cDNA and then sequence the cDNA in these DNA sequencing machines, which are, which are at that time, you know, getting better and better. The, the, the throughput and read length are both getting better and better. The error rates are going down. Where cDNA stands for complementary DNA, right? So maybe explain what... Oh, yeah. So, so there's just a, a reverse transcriptase to take a single-stranded RNA to get that to a double-stranded, uh, what's called cDNA, because it's complementary to the... You're forming the complement to the the single strand RNA you get from the sample, mm -hmm. and and the idea is that uh, at least back then we weren't able to sequence RNA directly, right? So we would tr right. reverse transcribe it to DNA in order to sequence it. Yeah, it's basically like you know at that point, I think in that time range, the power of the DNA sequencing machines and and their you know th their their rapid improvement in in throughput and read length was revolutionizing like functional genomics because we can we can um, we can sequence RNA that is you know converted to DNA we can sequence um, DNA that is attached to proteins with immunoperceptation so just using that machine to make measurements was changing all of the fields um, and I was in and and this the Max Planck Institute in Berlin, the um, molecular genetics Max Planck, they had also been one of the earliest RNA sequencing sites. So there's a paper from um, Marcel Schultz and uh, uh, a number, yeah, a number of other groups, in, and including the Vingren department. They had been one of these early RNA sequencing papers in 2008. Right, and so we reverse transcribe. RNA to cDNA and we sequence it. And what's what's the whole point of, of this exercise? So we can then try to assign those sequenced reads to uh, gene sequence, and um, you know we could map them to exons or to the genome, and then and then uh, so allow to allow for spliced alignment to the genome, and then um, obtain a count. So we, we're trying to. Uh, estimate the number of observations of each gene. And so, uh, you know, one, one thing at that step, at that early step is, is the ambiguity. There could be ambiguity in assignment, but if we, um, if we put that aside for a moment, uh, obtain a, a count of, of reads that can be assigned to genes, you can convert this, you can think about this as like a table. If you have multiple samples as columns, and multiple genes as rows, you have a very tall table of data and basically interested in comparing um, the abundance of genes or exons or isoforms, whatever your features of interest are, you, you're interested in comparing those across samples. Okay, and uh, that seems easy enough. You just compute the average, right, across, across samples or across groups. And just compare, or maybe you know, use a t-test. What's what's the problem with that? Yeah, exactly. And and um, a lot there. I think there were a number of papers that that just a, you know went went ahead and and maybe you know maybe log transform the data, 
and then apply a t-test. So the issue is the at the at the time, and and still there's an interest in having as few replicates as as possible. So like it would it would be very common to have two replicates, two biological replicates uh, in early 2010s. Uh, per per condition, if that sometimes there are ex experiments with no biological replicates, and um, so if we set aside the no replicate cases, even if you have two replicates, you're you you may have some chance at getting like the sign of the effect size right, but the the variability within replicates within biological among biological replicates, it, you have a you you have um, very little. Uh, sense of what that within group variability is. So you have an estimate standard deviation, like you could pool this, the estimates of standard deviation across the two groups. Um, that's like the pooled t-test, but it's very noisy. Um, so you're you don't you shouldn't really trust that estimate. And um, so you know conceptually, like what should we do? Like what what should a statistical procedure do? Um, if it if it's very uncertain, the t-test does take that into account, right? It widens the distribution, so you, the null distribution for the t-statistic takes into account that um, we have few degrees of freedom. Um, but there had already been this, I guess. It, maybe it's it's a good point of the conversation to bring up. There had already been statistical methods for microarray data that dealt with few samples. Um, so, like lemma. It was a very popular method from Gordon Smythe's group. And um, that had already come up with a framework for what to do when you have thousands of features like genes and very few replicates within which to estimate the variability. You can, um, you can form a prior distribution on the variance, this within group variance by looking across lots and lots of features. And then you can apply a Bayesian technique to update the information about the variability for each gene. So there was uh, Lima, and uh, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but I think some people even sort of tried to apply Lima to to RNA seq data as as it was. Yeah, there may be there may be some um, there may be some in that range. I, so I yeah, I guess at around uh, I know there's a there's a paper there, so there's a. Mark Robinson and Gordon Smythe had a paper for introducing EDGAR, I think, you know, in, in, I'm thinking like 2009, and then maybe even some other papers about estimating variability when you have counts instead of continuous valued data. Um, so like, you know, w w comparing different estimates of dispersion. So we use a different term when we talk about count data than continuous. Sometimes we talk about dispersion. Um, so there had, I think, yeah, there was already a, a sense that we should take into account the different data distribution um, that we're getting with sequencing data as compared to with microarray. Abstracting from the distributions for, for a minute, um, if we have some kind of distribution, some kind of statistical model that describes our data, um, whether it be microarray data or RNA-seq data, um, what are the different options to um, to do the analysis. So you mentioned 
a sort of Bayesian approach where you have a, a prior distribution of the variance. And maybe let's even explain, like, what, what do you do with the variance? So let's say you're able to estimate the variance. How does that fit into the whole analysis? How does that help you? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's there are varying approaches even then. The t-test takes into account, it widens the the um, the null distribution based on the the understanding that the the estimate of the variance is not a fixed quantity. So you you estimate the variance. You don't you don't obtain it um, like from an oracle. I, I I like to talk about oracle with students because it's like, well, yeah, imagine we just got the true value of the variability for each gene from an oracle that told us this is the true value. Then the test statistic would look like what? So the T distribution already widens when you have few samples to take that into account. What an, another thing you could do is just assume that we, we know it, and then you would have a, a Z statistic or a Z score. So, you know, using the T statistic is already a little bit taking into account the fact that you have um, fewer samples. There are there are varying frameworks in RNA-seq to whether or not to take into account the fact that we estimate the, the variability. But once we have the variance, whether estimated or, or uh, assumed to be from, from the oracle, um, what do we do with it? Yeah, so then you can... Um, you can plug that into a, a, a distribution and you can calculate a likelihood. So um, we can then you know, calculate the likelihood of the data given our estimated parameters, and then we can form tests. So we can, um, we can say what are, what we can estimate our parameters if there is a difference between the, the say groups of different samples. So let's say just two groups for simplicity. So we can estimate parameters, the, the, a location parameter, like the average that you mentioned, and then the, the variability. What would those parameters look like if we think that there's a difference? And then we can also estimate parameters supposing that there's no difference. So that's called the null hypothesis. And then a, a very, a very, um, a very good approach and popular in statistics is to form the ratio of those two. So likelihood, just like plugging in the parameter values and calculating the probability for a fixed for, for a certain distribution. And then calculating the ratio of those two, we automatically, there's a there is then a procedure for evaluating the likelihood ratio um, statistic. So we have, you know, from statistical theory, what the distribution of that would be for, for various scenarios. And so the likelihood ratio test is a very, you know, very popular um, test mm -hmm. at that point. So do all of these packages, so uh, DSEQ2, EDGAR, Lima, do they all do more or less the likelihood ratio test? Yeah, I think I would say it's definitely implemented in all the packages for various reasons. When we, uh, when we were writing the uh, DSEQ2, we we the default it, the default test that we perform is a is a different test it's the wald test which is the ratio of a coefficient in our model a parameter in our model divided by its it its standard error so we actually do a different test by default and um yeah we had some reasons for doing that that are maybe technical but we also offer the likelihood ratio test and it's encouraged for certain particular designs um but I would say another important framework, which is not in DSEQ2, but is in this uh, EDGAR package, is the idea of a quasi-likelihood. 
and so they have um, a different, uh, it's a different, you know, some additional theory there behind what's called a quasi likelihood. And I think the key thing for people to know about quasi likelihood is, is that it takes into account that the, the variance is, is estimated and not known, which, which is a very, you know, it's a very good thing to take into account, especially when you have small degrees of freedom. So I think the point that uh, we've made so far is that it's it's important to be able to calculate the likelihood. And, and for this, you need to be able to describe your data. You need to write down your statistical model. And those models um, differ for microarray and RNA-seq data. So, and the reason we should clarify, the reason they're different is that um, it's... Uh, it's a bad form to describe count data with a continuous distribution such as uh, such as normal, and so one of the probably one of the first distributions you would consider for the task of describing discrete data is Poisson, right? Yep. What is the issue with the Poisson distribution? So um, Poisson is a really good distribution for um, comparing technical replicates of sequencing data. So one one um, one little exercise I have in my in my when I have do tutorials or teaching is that you can download um, technical replicates where you you continue to sequence the same library, and that's really well approximated by a Poisson. Um, I can kind of walk through how that happens. Actually, like why does it end up looking Poisson? So you can it's it's you're basically you have a fixed set of molecules when you prepare a library. And your sequencing is then like sampling from them with, uh, you have a very large number of samples and, um, you know, each, each, the molecules could be, you can imagine them colored by the gene of origin. So you're sampling from this big pool of molecules. Um, and that's essentially a multinomial sampling process. Um, so there's sampling variability. And if you think about each gene, so like each color, in this sampling process, that's gonna be a binomial. If you just consider like, what is the count for this one gene among thousands, it would be a binomial. And the Poisson is a really good approximation for the binomial when the probabilities are small. So like one gene relative to all the others is, is, is pretty small. And when the number of observations is big. And so we're in that framework, we're in that realm when we're doing RNA sequencing. Um, yeah, so so that's why you get this Poisson variability if you look at technical replicates. Then the 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 issue is why not just use Poisson? Is that when we look at different samples, say from different mice, you know, they're all these are all like in the same condition group, like all control mice or or all the treated mice. We're no longer sampling from a fixed set of molecules, but the the molecules the proportion of each molecule is not fixed across the mice, across the biological replicates. So the fact that that P, like the probability vector from, from which we're sampling these molecules is changing, that induces um, over dispersion. And that just means more variance than something, more variance with, than, with respect to something. And in this case, we're talking about the Poisson. So more variance with respect to the Poisson. Yeah, so, so the thing to explain here is that unlike, for example, a Gaussian distribution that has a separate parameter for the mean and separate parameter for the variance, the Poisson distribution has only one parameter, and that parameter determines both the, the mean and the variance that 
think are equal. Um, so you, you can independently specify your, your mean and the variance. Exactly. Yeah. And it, and it, um, yeah. So the Poisson has this one parameter and it comes from, it's the, it's a limiting case of the binomial. So before we're talking about like sample in molecules and they each have a probability. So the Lambda, the limiting distribution is Lambda, the, single parameter of the Poisson is P times N. So you would expect if you sample a million fragments and you have something that's one over a thousand probability, you would expect a thousand count would be your average. And you can plug it into the Poisson and that the standard deviation would then be like the square root of that. So the square root of a thousand is how much like you would, you could, you could expect lower by square root of a thousand or higher by square root of a thousand around the min, mean value of a thousand. If you change P, which happens when you look across mice, then you're changing the lambda. And so um, then you, you, you will get more variance than just the square root of the, the mean value. If the Poisson distribution doesn't work there because it's a, it's a single parameter distribution, it doesn't, um, doesn't have enough degrees of freedom to account for, for the varying lambda be between the, um, uh, the different mice, let's say, uh, what do we use instead? So you would start to think of a mixture distribution because you have a sampling process. And if, if, if P was fixed, you know, once you fix P, once you fix a set of molecules, then we, we, we are, we can see that we have a sampling process that's well approximated by a Poisson. The mixture part is you have to account for the variability on P. And so you can, you could actually formulate multiple uh, distributions for, for how, how P might change across samples um, or P times N, the Lambda, how Lambda might change across samples. So um, there, like, what are, the, what are our restrictions? It has to be positive because it's, it's an abundance. So it can't, you can't have negative abundance, but that's about it. Like, I guess as long as it's continuous valued and, and and uh, non-negative, then any any distribution with support, meaning that it it it, it allows values in that range, is allowed. Right. Well, one one thing we should clarify is that um, often when people talk about mixtures, they mean finite mixtures. So you have you know lambda one, lambda two, lambda three. But that's not what you propose here. You're you're saying let's take an infinite, like let, let's mix an infinite set of distributions. Oh yeah, I I guess maybe I should say a hierarchical distribution would be another way to say it, and it basically means you you draw one parameter from a distribution, and then you use that, and then you you draw data from that draw. So you there's kind of you you're going to use two distributions to create data. Let's say y, like our data will be y, and we'll first draw one parameter, and then we'll plug that in to a di another distribution, and then draw data. So yeah, sometimes that's, it, it has multiple names that could be called a mixture distribution, or maybe it's better to say hierarchical distribution because there's a hierarchy of these two things. And I was, if we put Poisson at the bottom of our hierarchy, like that'll be the last thing we do is we'll get data that's count, count distributed and it will have sampling variability. Um, you can put something above that that tells you about the variability of, of, of P, the proportion of each gene um, across the mice. And you could put multiple things there. So it, like one thing you could do is a uh, uh, um, log normal. So like 
it could be that that is continuous valued and ha- and, and allows you know different scale and different different um, shape. Um, or another one that ends up being useful is a gamma distribution. So it's another positive valued distribution that allows um, flexibility in how much P changes across the the biological replicates. And I guess the the, crit- the important thing for for the math is that it's conjugate to the Poisson. That and and the the simplest explanation of what I mean by conjugate is that we have we can write out a probability distribution for those two distributions combined. So if we if we pull a, a value from a gamma distribution and we plug that in as the rate of a Poisson distribution, that resulting distribution, if we tie these two things together, we can write out in a closed form the mathematical formula for the probability of a given value, of a given count at the end. So that is that's then a really useful thing because we can calculate likelihoods in a closed form setting. Yeah, and that's called the negative binomial distribution. Yeah, that's called that. So Wolfgang Huber has over time tried to start calling it gamma Poisson just because it's so much better for teaching. But that's what yeah, gamma Poisson and negative binomial are are equivalent. And we use negative binomial in in the DC two paper and software, but those two are equivalent. Yeah, and I think over time, negative binomial. I, I don't know who who was the first person to propose it, but over time, I think it became uh, very popular for these uh, type of these types of data. And uh, are you actually aware of uh, like anyone using anything except negative binomial uh, these days? Um, you might often see Poisson. So there there are Bayesian models. Uh, Bayesian hierarchical models where they basically just construct a similar setup to the gamma Poisson. So, um, you know, you might like, I actually, I just saw, we just had uh, Christina Kondorsky from, uh, from University of Wisconsin give a seminar last week at UNC. So like in my mind, I'm thinking about, she was showing a single cell, single cell RNA sequencing uh, model. And she had, you know, Poisson, for the counts that we observe, but then there's more things going on that explain how the rate varies across cells and across cell types. And she mentioned like, this gives you something similar to what you would expect with negative binomial. So there'll be, there'll be uh, variability. It's not fixed within a ce- within a cell, within a cell type, there's extra variability going on. So you'll get this over dispersion, but she didn't write out, this is, you know, I, we assume the data follows a negative binomial. Right. Right, um, and and we'll talk about uh, Bayesian approaches uh, a bit later. But um, I guess what I meant to ask was that it, it seems this um, conjugate behavior with uh, between the gamma distribution and the Poisson is is so much convenient that uh, no one really considers like using log normal plus Poisson, right? Or, oh, they do in in. Um, I've seen it in microbiome research. Um, so there there are cases uh, there are cases where of of count sequencing data or count data in, in high throughput count data in genomics or metagenomics where this gamma assumption of 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 the variability of the probability vector is is not sufficient, and so that there's somehow it's it's. Um, it doesn't give you 
a compatible distribution with the data. So I, I have seen lognormal Poisson in microbiome. Very interesting. Okay. And so then the question becomes, how do you estimate the parameters of the higher level distribution of that, for example, gamma distribution or log normal distribution, right? How do you do that? Yeah. So we can, you know, the first thought, always the first thought is, is to maximize the likelihood of the data. So in statistics, that's called the MLE. The, if we try to estimate the value of how variable things are across biological replicates um, by, by you know, multiply, you know, we have this closed form likelihood, we can multiply it across the samples and just maximize it. That gives us the MLE. And with lots of samples that, um, that will be a good estimate. Uh, yeah, that will be a good estimate. So it, it'll get close to the true value if we think that the data follows that distribution. But we're not in that realm yet. So we have too few samples that the MLE is close to the true value. So that's even taking into account that you have lots of genes or just having lots of genes not help there? Well, so it doesn't help yet. So um, when I say like we can maximize the likelihood, I should be more specific. I, I should say if we look at one gene at a time, and we try to estimate the variability within replicates. And even let's make a really good, really simplifying assumption that the variability will, will, it will have the same distribution in the two groups and that the only thing that changes is the location. So the only thing that changes is the expect, expected value, but that we'll have some way, we'll have some assumption that the way that the variance is linked to the mean value will assume is the same across the two groups. Um, so even if we make that assumption, we still don't have enough information to reliably estimate that the, the, these parameters for the gamma um, with like three samples per group. And that notion is, is a very important one, the, the mean variance relationship, right? So we already discussed it in the context of the Poisson distribution, but maybe you can describe it more generally. Sure. So when we specify this hierarchy, hierarchy of distributions, um, like the gamma for the um, for the rate of the of the sampling process, and then the Poisson to get the count data, that um, that induces a relationship between the variance of the data and the mean value. So they're linked um, by a parameter um, which is called the dispersion, um, and it's actually parameterized in multiple ways, but the one the one we used where um, if the dispersion is higher, the variance is higher. So it links it in a positive way. And um, as the counts get high, it's basically that the variance is uh, is a multiple of the mean squared. Mm -hmm. But that's specifically for the uh, uh, gamma Poisson distribution. That doesn't hold for other kinds of priors. Right, right. Right, so that's specifically once we once we assume this relationship, then we have this 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 link between the variance and the mean, and it's and if we if we're if we're specifying that each gene has its own dispersion parameter, then each gene can have you know kind of has its own link. So we we you know we get the dispersion estimate for this gene, we get the expected value um, uh, for for these samples, and then we can plug in. What, what we think the variance will be of the counts, but we could allow that dispersion parameter to vary across the sample, across the genes, sorry. Right, and so what you were saying, I believe, is that if we assume 
a unique uh, dispersion parameter for each gene, then we don't have enough data to estimate that dispersion parameter and plug it into our likelihood function and construct the likelihood test, right? So how do we uh, deal with that? So, um, right, so we had, we had there, there's then, you know, I, I want to, with respect to the work we did in DC2, I want to make sure to acknowledge like the other work that had been done. So first of all, there's already been the proposal from microarray analysis packages to share information. That had that was clearly a good idea. That um, you look at tens of thousands of variance estimators for the for Lima, look across tens of thousands of variance estimates, and um, you get a good sense for for how spread out they are and and what the central value is. And um, and by uh, moving them towards the central value you get a more stabilized test and you can show that it's more powerful. So you kind of, there will always be noisy variance estimates in the tails. Um, it's actually related to another concept in statistics called winner's curse, that if there's a lot of noise, then the top, the top if out of, a, out of a distribution, the top is probably not the top. It's probably just got lucky. And so, there will be noise in the tails, so we move things towards the center, and we get more robust and more powerful um, testing. So Lima already exists for, for continuous value, and also um, there had already been uh, work from uh, the EDGAR group, so Mark Robinson and others, to, to shrink, to move together um, dispersion estimates in the context of this gamma Poisson, or negative binomial. Right. And uh, like even a simpler solution would be just assume the same dispersion across all genes. What was the problem with that? Right. And so um, the first version of DSeq had kind of a balanced approach where they, uh, a, ba a balanced and conservative approach where they, um, they look at the, they look at the the distribution of, of all the estimates of dispersion across all the genes. And if they are high, if they're on the top half of the distribution, just leave them be because, you know, that's a conservative choice because if the dispersion is high we, and we make it low, we might be, um, we might, you know, be tricked by noise and think that there's a significant difference when really there's just a lot of variability within groups. Um, but for the for the dispersion estimates that were on the bottom half of the distribution, they moved it up to a common value, which is the middle. So they moved it all the way up to the middle. So it was kind of um, information sharing for the bottom half, and then conservative choice for the top half. Was the top half also consulted to infer the middle? Yes. Yeah. So look across um, look across all the genes. Although there was a uh, I'm trying to th this now you're asking me to think back to the algorithm details in 2012. So I I believe at that point Simon had implemented a a robust procedure for defining which genes inform the middle. So there was a there was kind of iterative process of defining the middle. And that that be, that's actually pretty important and and there's that's actually still an interesting topic. I've seen really interesting papers like from the from the single cell world in I think the basics, one of the basics uh, pa papers looked at like, how should outliers inform the prior? That's a really interesting topic. And there's also a really interesting work from the Lima group on that. Um, 
Belinda Phipson is, you know, a lot of people have thought about that. And that's a really interesting area for statistical research. Um, so yes. So you, you, your question was, how should the top half, it does inform the middle, but then maybe not all of the points. So if some of the points seem very extreme, then maybe those should not change your, your concept of like, where's the middle of this distribution. And so what's the problem with uh, just pinning all the dispersions to the same value, be the lower half of, or just all of them? Yeah, here, here the problem is biology. It's that um, genes do have differential, uh, different uh, 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 variability or dispersion. So they just, some genes uh, have more, for, what, for whatever reason, like tightly controlled variability across, up across mice, let's say. We are, keep going back to these mice. So um, some genes are, are kind of more tightly uh, uh, controlled maybe, and others we just do see more variability across. And so um, plugging it all to the same value, we would, we would also be making mistakes. So I said the MLE our first, our, 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 our just looking at the gene estimate is noisy, but we would also be biased if we just plugged in the middle value. And, and DeSeq, the first version, it, it had made a choice. It said, okay, we'll, be, we'll, we'll accept bias for the low estimates with respect to the whole distribution. We'll be biased on the low part. We'll be unbiased on the top part, but we'll be conservative because we, we don't want to move them down. Moving them down would pr produce lower p-values and maybe some false positives. So um, we accept false negatives by moving the low estimates up, and we um, try to not induce false positives by keeping the high estimates high. Um, but that is conservative. That procedure, they and 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 they knew that, and so you know at that time they were interested in kind of updating that to be more balanced, so more of a shrinkage approach. Yeah. So what what I assume has happened was that uh, you know the, these people started to get a lot of angry letters <laughs> like my p values are too high. Like fix your software. I don't. I can't speak to that. But that's a really good point. Um, there is this challenge in writing methods to take input. Um, users give invaluable input, and they they you know they can spot problems, they bugs, method gaps. It's a challenge to, to be receptive, but then to also hold fast to, you know, we have a, we have, we have, we've come up with this set of methods and we have some theoretical justification. And if we let things slip, we will lose our, our, uh, you know, our grasp of what, what's going on. That's actually, that's a, you know, that's a really hard challenge. Yeah, especially for, for a package as popular as uh, DSeq and DSeq2 have become. Yeah. And, and then the other, th as time goes on, and the, one of the most important things I've tried to do is not change things too much because then people expect it to be like a fixed quantity and they've, you know, they, 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 they accept, they, they, they expect a certain performance. And so... I, in the early years after it published, like a year after it published or two, there were things that I wanted to update and I, we made updates and there was, you know, a lot of angry emails <laughs> about like, you know, I updated my R and now I get a slightly different number of, in my opinion, slightly different number of adjusted p-values less than a threshold. And I, in my opinion, it's like, oh yeah, but it's kind of similar, right? It's like went from 15 to 18. That's not, but for, 
investigator, well, those three might be really important and they want to know, are they- Yeah, those are yes or no decisions. Yeah. Those are three experiments to perform and, and, and they want to know like, well, which should I trust? <laughs> and as a method developer, you develop methods that have certain operating characteristics. So you're like, well, like- <laughs> On that, on at, at, overall, it should perform. It should, you know, have these expectations. But I can't tell you if that gene is to be trusted, singled out. That really shows you, you know, how differently various people interpret these p-values, right? You, as a statistician, you have a more theoretical understanding of, of a p-value, which is arguably, well, it's uh, definitely more correct. Right, but there is this folk understanding of p-values and tests that give you this hard yes or no answers. And I don't know, do you have any thoughts about like how could the the field ha has the field evolved past that? Well, I think that the the concept of the um, the false discovery rate helps a lot because then it's a property of a set. So we're no longer looking at an, or I, you know, hopefully people are no longer looking at an individual p-value and saying like, do I believe that one? But it's getting people to think about sets and rates. So then they understand that, you know, we're not, uh, you know, the, the method's not going to say these are the, these are the, you know, if we say 5% uh, false discovery rate, these are the five out of a hundred that are false. <laughs> it's, you understand, there's, there, maybe it's easier for people to, get the idea that like they're in there, there's some probability uh, we, we expect on average, there will be five out of a hundred, but I can't tell you which ones. And, and I also see that, I think it's really good also to see that in, in uh, GWAS, people talk about like posterior inclusion probabilities and, and credible sets of variants, because we just can't say which one, but we, we can give you a posterior probability for this set. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I still think you, you're a bit optimistic on on that front, and uh, I I talk to a lot of people who treat uh, so, so the uh, you know the the multiple uh, testing correction. They just treat oh those were incorrect p-values, but these p-values are correct, and so if these p-values are less than zero point zero five, then this must be true or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I guess like. We, I mean, I, I try not to blame, you know, when there's this lack in, in an understanding, I, I try to think about it as a communication problem and just that we need to do a better job with outreach and, uh, and, and teaching. Um, and maybe, you know, we need more uh, tutorials that are there that are, um, that are directed at, at biologists to think about, you know, def, you know, what, what are these, what are these quantities you're getting out of these software? Which uh, leads me to a question, uh, basically about Bayesian, about the Bayesian approach. And um, would you agree that Bayesian approach didn't really achieve any significant adoption in these in this field? Meaning that there are there are some approaches inspired by the by Bayesian inference, like uh, what you basically mentioned, right, about uh, shrinkage and priors and maybe some empirical base, but that's still not a, a full Bayesian approach that relies on informative priors, that relies on analyzing the full posterior distribution instead of doing uh, statistical tests. So, and 
it would seem that the Bayesian approach is exactly what this field needs because of the um, uh, small small sample numbers. So why was that not successful? Oh, you're gonna. I'm gonna get in trouble no matter which way I go with this one. <laughs> <laughs> the, so, I many many times I I I've written methods that like that that draw heavily on on the Bayesian framework, and I I even call them Bayesian methods. But then someone else might say, but they're not. They're not because of you know what you just said. Actually, like you don't you know prior is not specified ahead of time, and and um, then I you know I'm, I may yeah I, I make approximations here. So I think a key a key aspect is that the 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 data generating mechanism, which and this is something I really like about Bayes, is that you you think about you write down the data generating mechanism as part of coming up with a model. Um, it's very complicated, and there's many layers and dimensions. And um, like, think these single cell Bayesian methods. If you, you know, it's these people. I think I, I really like all the Bayesian methods in single cell. And you look, and it's it's incredibly complicated because you could have you have you have you know samples, cell types, cell states, trajectories, pseudotime, cells, genes, etc. So there's just lots of layers. And um, you want to be flexible in how you specify the data generating mechanism. So you're not, it, 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 you're going to end up in a territory where you have to do computational sampling from the posterior. And so that is the right thing to do, but it, uh, and, and it may you know, give you some desirable properties, but it, it leads you to a place where your, your, your software um, just requires um, inspection of, of diagnostics and things like that. So it it um, it limits its uh, its its applicability to, to so you know, who can run this. You you there are certain things that you need to check. There are certain things you know you have to ensure convergence and that you've sampled enough. Um, there are lots of important things to check and to know how to interpret the output. And so, and then, yeah, so, so then it limits, you know, who, who's qualified to interpret and and, and read the output of this method. Um, and then another aspect is uh, people want deterministic output. So that's another thing is that, you know, you, you could have, you know, different runs will give you slightly different answers. You might can, you know, you could uh, try to avoid that by running it longer, but um Nevertheless, it's not deterministic anymore, and and that's another thing that people really want. That I run it, and you run it, and we, um, and there's a kind of deterministic state. So you know, you can set seeds, but just the idea that you that it would be dependent upon a number at the top of your script is is undesirable to some people. But you you think overall the reasons are more technical rather than uh, you know fun fundamentally uh, people don't agree that. You know, Bayesian methods are would would be better in in this case. So, like, if we were in a different state of technology, you know, if inference was fast enough that we could have a huge sample size and like efficiently analyze it, um, so effectively your results would be mostly like deterministic. If those technical issues just suddenly got out of our way, would 
with Bayesian approaches do you think become more attractive in the science? Well, when so that's another th another thing is like as the sample size grows, then uh, you know most of these Bayesian models then convert like the prior goes down and you end up with the likelihood dominating. So then you. Oh, sorry, what, what what I meant to say was like the um, the posterior sample. Oh, right. So how how many samples you can reasonably. Oh, oh draw from the posterior. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's a I think it's a good question. And I th you know, one so I one thing is I think there have been people who've done really good work to make it more broadly usable like the Stan team and I've used Stan many times in my research which is a a, a software suite for for sampling from posteriors from models that you write down. And they've done a they and pre, you know previous groups like Bugs and Jags have done a ton of work to make it more accessible and and also to teach lots of people, lots of scientists in different fields how to do the diagnostic work that you have to do to interpret the output. So then there's a I think there's like a gradation of this how well how well has Bayes been taken up in computational biology? There's lots of methods that are doing this kind of approximation to empirical Bayes technically where we look at the data a certain way to over many, many features to form a prior distribution. And then like DSeq2 is then calculating p-values after having, you know, improved estimates with using Bayes ideas um, or even, or even doing, um, doing Bayesian computation, but using the data to inform priors. Um, I think that, you know, those are really popular. And then there are, I think there are people who are directly, you know, running Bayesian like Bayesian models from start to finish. It's just that those are hard to distribute as software. Speaking about Bayes, um, here's what, what I, it would seem to me a simple thing to do. So you mentioned that we cannot assume the same dispersion across genes because, you know, the biology, because it's like different genes are apparently have just different, uh, different dispersions. Why is there no simple way to aggregate the information, not just in your, so if I understand correctly, all these pa packages, they only pull the data within the data set, right? Whereas we have by now a ton of already performed uh, experiments, why not pull data across all of that data and effectively form a very good, very informative prior? That's a great question. And right, it's not done that much. With a caveat, I think it is done in uh, deep learning that people start with a real with a good map start you know start with a good network architecture learned on another data set so transfer learning is that it that idea is used a lot but not in but yeah so why don't bayesian models pull from the sra i guess one easy answer is the amount of uh experiment to experiment technical variation so if you could if you had a so batch effects, the fact that like um, the shape and the, the 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 location and the scale of the data would change across different experiments. So just because I have you know control samples of this organ in this organism, I can't immediately assume that the distribution of those same samples in some other lab would be a good fit. But there must be some methods that that uh, there must be some methods that that do that. Although I'm not, I don't use them in my, I don't think I use them in my practice. But right, uh, I I would think that there wouldn't be a problem at all because by definition, 
like you form your prior over many, many experiments and your experiments, your particular conditions that exist in your lab is just a sample from that distribution. So by definition, like if you have, uh, if you analyzed enough experiments, you would get a proper sample from that distribution. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking, so I was a postdoc in Rafa Irizarry's group and um, he and Matthew McCall and others had a paper where they looked at the question of is a gene expressed and you have it so you have a sample and you ask is the gene expressed and they did pull from um from geo so gene expression omnibus they say well here's this gene exp here's this gene's expression in thousands of samples and we have a distribution and um we'll just like look at it relative to that reference distribution um and that's you know that's a really powerful idea so the um, and there, you know, there are methods, there are some methods that, that do make use of, of reference samples. I mean, just to plug a paper from my group recently, um, there's a, uh, we were looking at splicing, like, we, you know, we have a sample, um, but we maybe have low counts or you know, not also not many samples. And we want to compare its splicing pattern to a reference panel because we don't have many samples. So we use GTEx for this. Because there's you know thousands of samples in GTEx, and they 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 have provided isoform level quantification, so you know different isoforms of a gene, and then they estimate the the relative proportion of each. And so we 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 tried to use that as like a reference distribution to say um, what is this splicing pattern like? Is it similar to heart or to liver? And and yeah, and like I think our method would be better if we used an even broader panel than GTEx. I think because it's with sh we have these short reads where there's ambiguity, um, it's, it's, there are not, as, I, as far as I know, like there's so many different ways to try to estimate that and, and there's variable uncertainty. So it's hard to, it's harder than it was with geo to just have like a gene expression table. Um, you just had the probe value, the probe intensity with microarray, but so that would be cool though. It would be nice if we'd looked across like all the SRA samples to characterize the splicing in a, in a sample. Okay, so uh, we drilled a bit, but um, the, so you described how dSeq, uh, just dSeq one, version one, um, it, um, it did this half pulling where it uh, pulled the dispersion up from the lower half but left the upper half intact. Uh, so how was DSIG2 different in, in this regard and what, what was the push behind changing that behavior? Sure, so Simon and Wolfgang, like they, you know, they knew that the, the choices they'd made were conservative and then they wanted to like have higher power um, and, and, and also ideally just more accurate dispersion estimates um, because they know, you know, you've introduced bias if you move all the lower half up. So, um, so then the idea was to, to have a method which would um, just, again, like ap apply a Bayesian framework. So estimate a prior distribution for the dispersions for these individual gene dispersions. We don't know them. The Oracle didn't give them to us. So we don't know them, but we could, we could try at least to estimate their distribution. Um, and then we have the likelihood of for each gene. And so then we could get a per gene posterior estimate. And 
the just to mention the existing methods um this was like again this was like summer of 2012 that we were in contact talking about like how to how to update this what would be a potential project to work on there was a method um called dss that came out right around then which basically did what we wanted to do it 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 applied a Bayes formula to to get a posterior estimate for each gene there was also edgar which had a weighted a weighted likelihood so you had the per gene likelihood and then a weight applied to the common dispersion value and the way at that time the way that they share that they balanced the the per gene information and the across all genes information was with a parameter um that was actually i think at that point it was fixed so it was like um the weight across the common weight the common weight for the common dispersion estimate was like 10 times like looking at 10 genes um and so we were kind of in this space between these two methods. We wanted to have it be the weighting of the of the prior should be determined by the Bayes formula. So we didn't want to fix that value. And then the the, the space where we were trying to fill with with DSS was that um, we thought we could um, estimate the prior um, by looking at the data. And, and uh, DSS had done this, I think, with simulated data. So they, at some point, they had a step where they simulated dispersion values to estimate the width of the prior. And um, Simon had the point that we could estimate it from the data using some distributional assumptions about these dispersion values. So basically, first you look at each gene separately and calculate the dispersion, what it would be if you had just that information, and then you try to fit some kind of parametric distribution to to these values. Yeah, and so the I think the key idea for us was that on the log scale, so DSS had had also um, looked at the log of the dispersion values and 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 said, well, that looks that looks like a bell shape for many experiments. So we could try to say that it's normally distributed on the log scale these dispersion values from each gene. And then uh, I think Simon's point when, when we started this project was that on the log scale, um, the um, we could figure out the prior width um, because it should have a certain distribution. So the log of the dispersion values um, should be chi-squared with the degrees of freedom that had to do with the um, the degrees of freedom so the sample size and the number of group like the number of groups or the number of parameters in the model that would that would tell us what the what the variability of that distribution should be if they all had the same dispersion but then when we see more than that distribution that tells us about how variable they actually are so if if all the genes had fixed dispersion we had a formula for how wide our observed uh, log dispersion values were, we see it's wider than that. And that difference is what we use to estimate the prior width. And that, sorry, so one more detail, <laughs> just, I know there's a lot here, but the fact that the that that if you start with a distribution that has a certain width and then you have extra sampling variability, that's uh, that's just a property of normal distributions. So when you, if you sample a value and then you you from a normal distribution, and then you sample again this hierarchical two two times. 
the variance is just add. So that's a really simple formula for, for um, if you see something this wide and you think it should have been this less wide, I, I shouldn't be using my hands. And <laughs> it's less wide than the difference is the, is, is your, your estimate of the width of the original prior. Uh, interesting. Interesting. But, uh, how do you validate a method like that? Because many people may have many different ideas how they want to calculate these dispersions, but ultimately you make a claim that your p-values give a certain um, you know, false, false discovery rate. How do you ensure that that is a valid claim? Yeah, and that's a that's a great question. Generally, how to how to validate methods, um, statistical methods, or um, we so the first iteration of this paper. So you know, we we implemented something like I just described, and then we the next question was how do we validate this? So the first round, we thought to do data splitting, and that you know that was tricky because there were still not so many data sets that had a lot of replicates. So now there are there are more data sets that have like many replicates. So there's a paper from Sturch that has um, like 40 replicates of yeast per in two conditions. So that's really nice for benchmarking in, in any context. Like if you can find high replicate data sets, those are really nice because then you can you can split the data and you can look at the um, the 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 set that you say has a certain difference, and you can estimate like the the difference, like the fold change, say, and then you can compare it to data that you haven't looked at. And that's just my favorite. That you know, that's my favorite approach. We didn't have too many samples, so I, we we tried that. But then, if you don't have too many samples, you know, just because it's not called in the held out data doesn't mean it's false. It could be that in the held out data it was a false negative. So that's that's problematic when you have reduced samples, but we did try that. But but still, how how would that method work? Because you have to make the judgment call: what what is different, what what is not right. So it's not just a matter of like under a threshold, over a threshold, right? And it also depends on your sample size. Presumably, if you have a high enough sample size, everything is statistically significant. So uh, it, it's more like a philosophical question, right? What does it mean to be differential expressed? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it is really hard in this point null. When you're talking about a point null, which we just mean like, the null hypothesis is that the difference is 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 zero, or that the full change is one. That is hard, and and that is one reason that I I like, and I've we've tried to move towards um, this uh, this uh, evaluation criteria proposed by Matthew Stevens called the false sign rate. That's the, that's then if you have a posterior, it's the it's the integral of the posterior distribution on the other side of the sign. So if you estimate there's a positive sign that the the gene makes the expression go the gene's expression goes up what's the probability you got the sign wrong it actually goes down and that uh, is uh really well accommodated to the data splitting because then you can just you know look at some other data and calculate this the full the sign and then the rate of how many times you got the sign wrong whereas so you're not like you said this like point null is it ever true maybe it's maybe the point null is true for no genes if you you know in an experiment but you certainly will get wrong signs. 
Right, and and so you said that this approach wasn't really applicable because you didn't have enough replicates in the existing experiment. So which which one did you take instead? Yeah, so we did try the data splitting, but with a bunch of caveats. So we we, we tried data splitting, and we I forget how we determined like if it was um, you know if it was replicated. One thing, and and there's some I think there's a paper from like um, Roger Ping and some people at Hopkins about like, you should probably be a little lenient with the p-value in the replication data set, right? Because it's not necessarily going to get a 0.05 p-value in the replication. It doesn't mean you didn't replicate it. But anyway, so I think you should think about even, you know, if you have, if you're trying to do the data splitting approach with with not so much data, you should think about how you define the out group. What we did, so we submitted it with that, with like a highly caveated um, data splitting for the evaluation and then the reviewers said, no, 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 you have to write a simulation. You can't publish a bioinformatics method without a simulation. And it is, I think it, we had already done simulations in, in, in working on the method. Um, so that was actually pretty easy to add in because we, you know, I, as of course, as when you're developing a method, simulation is incredibly valuable. Like it should at least do as well on the model that you think the data follows. So we had already built, we had already done a lot of those so we could, pretty easily plug those in as a simulation as well. And then I think, so then we put, I think in the order in the paper, simulation then comes first and then the data splitting um, example. So were there any other significant changes between DSeq and DSeq2 apart from the way you sort of pulled the dispersion estimates? So so that was the, that was kind of the biggest, that was like the first order of business. And then Aside from that, there was another methods um, development, which was to to basically do the same procedure to the fold changes. So um, there were some like fully Bayesian models, um, like um, um, Bayseq and Shrinkseq. There were there were other models that had mod had moderated or applied Bayesian shrinkage to the fold changes, the effect sizes. Um, but they, I think they both relied on sampling. And so we provided a, you know, another kind of non-sampling based approach to get um, Bayesian uh, estimates for the fold change. And so those are, and why bother with that? If you have p-values, you can go and, you know, you can just look at the significant genes. And our argument there was that I think the Bayesian uh, effect sizes are good for ranking. So if you want to rank genes not by their FDR set, so like their their true or false status, but just by their fold change, and we've argued that the Bayesian estimates are good for for ranking genes by effect size. So that was a methodological difference. And then the the last thing was we wanted to switch the data container to this new thing at the time called a summarized experiment. And um, so Bioconductor had, you know, introduced this new container from the expression container, um, the expression, the microarray expression container. So they were moving to a container that had the possibility to have genomic ranges tied to the rows. And that's, I think that's really cool. I've always, I always thought that was a really a big improvement because then you can do range-based um, uh, querying of the object. So you can say, you have this big object which has lots of genes. You can say, "Show me the genes that are around this particular region, like say this GWAS hit or this um, ChIP seek peak." 
and you can just pull out based on that range the the genes nearby. And uh, after DSeq two was originally released, you mentioned that you try not to do any big changes. But have there been changes that you've made or or wanted to make to DSeq two? Yeah, so there were I I I did make. Uh, changes to the dispersion in the early period, and I tried to document these, but it, you know, um, yeah, like the first few releases, there was just a lot of complaints about it. It results changing too much across version, and so the last, I think the last, in my opinion, the last big change was to um, at one point. This was kind of like as I was in my postdoc and and planning to start off as a PI. I realized that well, one thing I want to do is work more on the effect size estimator. So, um, in the first version of DSeq, we had used a normal distribution, and a lot of people. This is again this example of good feedback. We had gotten a lot of examples of like that not being a good distribution. So, like people had experiments where one gene was targeted and should be very highly differentially expressed, while the rest should not be affected. And that didn't really look like the data sets that we had designed the software for, because so then that's not a normal distribution that we we were assuming the effect sizes you know could be approximated by a normal, and that's not at all normal. So one of the first things I wanted to do was to like explore alternative, more heavy-tailed distributions. So I did make a change at one point to split the effect size moderation out of the main procedure. So the main DEC function uh, would just do the dispersion uh, shrinkage, but not do the effect size shrinkage. And it would give you, you know, p-values and adjusted p-values. And then the second procedure to shrink the log fold changes would be a dedicated function. And that, that then allowed me to provide a switch where you could look at different methods. And we also, another convenient, nice thing about that, splitting it out to a separate function was that I could also put in like, there's a, there's an adaptive shrinkage method from Matthew Stevens called Ash that we could plug in that as well. So you can get this kind or that kind or that kind and, you know, other ones potentially um, by making it like a separate function. And so these days, if, if someone does an, a differential gene expression experiment. So I guess the main alternatives are DSeq2, HR, CovDiff from CovLinks. What what else? Limavoom. Yeah, so I think Limavoom is really um, a strong method. It's also very fast because it, it has under the hood the linear model. Um, so yeah, there's, I think there's a, you know, these are all really good pipelines. What would your advice be if someone had to choose between these? As biased as you are. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm I, definitely biased. What I actually tell people when I work with them is if you have a pipeline that's working, then it's you You understand the software and, and you can interpret the output, then you should stick with that. Among the among, among methods that have been, you know, looked over quite a bit. <laughs> so like, you know, the methods that have been benchmarked and we understand the, this, this, this term, the operating characteristics of those methods, then, and you, you know, you've got a pipeline that works is to stick with that. Yeah, but if, if someone starts from scratch. Yeah, so if they, I guess if they start from scratch, you know, there are some subtle method differences. So like if they're working with me and I, I, I'm, 
I would argue that it's useful to like at some point look at the effect sizes and 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 rank things by effect sizes. So I'll often and I I also like to look at those plots. So the plots of the posterior fold changes. So you know I'll put them down this path. Also, the other thing is like um, when I collaborate with people, I have the ability to add things to DSeq two, and so like. That's another reason why, you know, in collaborations with me, I often will use DC2 because I can like add in something every now and then there's something I notice that's, that's, that can be modified, but I try not, it's always like, I try not to change the default now, but it's like, you know, a side path. Are there any circumstances where you would say, you know, DC2 is not the right choice for you instead use that one? Oh, sure. So here's, I'll give you some that I, you can, these are documented cases because I say these all the time on the bioconductor support site. Here's one is uh, people come with an experimental design where they want to compare across two groups. I'll make it as simple as possible, but there are within, any, when they, within these two groups, they have multiple measurements on a unit, like uh, a, say a donor, human donor. So you have multiple not technical replicates, but biological replicates for each human donor. And then they want to compare across the two groups. So they want to take into account the structure within group. So it's like a hierarchy. Yeah. And so you would, you know, if you were approaching this outside of bioinformatics, you would use a mixed effects model and you can, you know, account for the, um, the fact that the samples from the same donor are going to be correlated with, with each other. And so, in DSeq2, and I, I think also in EdgeR, there's not a way to account for that. It's, it's, we only have like fixed effects GLM. Um, and in Lima, there is a method to account for that. So that's really convenient. And so uh, from my understanding that the, the statistical methodology had been developed for multiple probes. Um, so the fact that you might measure, so in the different dimension of the matrix, you might measure the same, the pr same probe might be correlated within a gene. Um, so um, that method is called duplicate correlation, but it also extends, you can apply the same math to the columns of the matrix. So you can say these samples have a correlation structure and the method learns the correlation from the data and then uses that for the inference. So that's one, I mean, and then a, a, a much easier one to describe is that when you have a lot of samples, then the GLM will be slow. And if you're, if you're not really interested in the very low counts, so um, this might, this, I think this doesn't work for single cell because zero ones and twos are not to be thrown away. But if you're not interested, if you're looking at bulk RNA-seq and you have very many samples, Lima is going to be really fast. So I, I, I myself use Limavoom when I've got many, many samples, and I recommend the same thing on the support site to people. You must get a ton of like user support requests. How do you deal with them? Yeah. So I probably I get maybe like I think I calculated it the past few years, and it's like two to three a day um, through the support site. Um, and so you know, one thing I should say is that the fact that Bioconductor at some point transitioned from a mailing list to a support site, and that's been really huge as a developer to, these don't go through my email inbox, or like they do, but then they get moved to a folder. That's just really helpful. Um, and I can go and edit my response. I can like, things can, you can, 
block code and have threaded discussions, et cetera. You can unsubscribe. So the support side is something like Stack Overflow, but specifically for your package. Yeah, and it's actually, well, it's, it's for all Bioconductor and it it's based off of Biostars. Uh, so Istvan helped a lot in getting this up and running for Bioconductor. It's the, and it's the same source code. It's like a forked version of the source code, I guess. And, and that's been really great. And, um, yeah, so, um, Lori and Martin, and uh, there's a couple of people who helped out, who made this possible from Bioconductor side and Istvan from Biostar's side. That's been really key. But then, you know, just to say how, you know, from the beginning, I was, I, I tried to answer everybody and try to make everybody happy. You know, people came with questions, which were really not about the software, but more about like, how should I design my experiment? And, and I, in the beginning phases, I just wanted people to use the tool. So I would try to answer everything. Now that's really not possible because I have PhD students and teaching obligations and a family. <laughs> and so I have to sleep. I've tried now to um, transition from uh, answering literally every everybody's question to I just try to zero in on the software-based questions. And when it's a question that's very, it's a valid question, but it's about how should I conduct my experiment? What would be the right way to think about these samples? I, 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 I have to push back on those and just say, I don't have time. It's basically statistical consulting. That's another of my job actually at UNC is I'm, I'm a statistical consultant and I have, you know, that's a part of my time is I have to back in before pandemic, like people come to my office and we chat about statistical design, but that's like, I'm actually, you know, that's part of my supported effort. So I have to push back on it and say, you know, maybe look around at your institute for uh, consulting cores that you could sit down and talk to someone. Does anyone accept you uh, do any user support for GSIG too? Do you assign your PhD students to do that or something? I haven't. I haven't asked any students to help. There are some. There are a number of people who help out, who are a, a great help. So there's Alexander and Kevin, and there's a couple of people who really help out quite a bit. They field various questions about RNA seq in general, and then some about DSeq too. I haven't asked any students. I mean, I, the way I think about it is like if you get into a PhD program or or whatever, whatever level, and you, you become interested in developing software, um, that's great. And, and you will benefit from providing support for your software. So, uh, over, you know, I don't, I, I, I have this talk with different trainees that I work with, or I'm on their committee that like, it's a lot of extra work. Um, but if you want to stay in this zone of tool development or software development, then it can carry you pretty far if you, you know, if you build a community of users and one way to get that community is to be responsive. But it depends if somebody, if somebody's developing methods as part of their dissertation, but then they want to go into a different field or they want to um, transition, then, you know, then, then uh, you know, dedicating their lives to answering user questions might not be the right answer for them. DSIG2 is not a, a new tool. Um, but the reason we, part of the reason also that it's been a very influential tool, but uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you about it is that um, you recently received a grant from uh, um, CZI, and maybe you can explain what that is and what the grant is for and what does that all mean for the community? Sure. Th yeah, that's a, that's a good point. 
So um, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is CZI has um, done a lot of has had a lot of funding opportunities for development of software, bioinformatics software. Some of them are specifically tied to single cell or um, imaging. Um, so like developing open source tools for single cell analysis or for imaging. But then there was a general call, I guess it was a year, more than a year ago, just um, for, for open source software that is essential to, to scientific workflows. So that was the EOSS, Essential Open Source Software um, RFA. And they had three different rounds and that's um, a really unique uh, funding opportunity. There's not often funding available for existing software to to maintain it or to you know answer user emails or it was very flexible the the kinds of things you could use it for. And so I applied for um, to extend DSeq two in in two different ways, and um, was lucky enough to be one of the awardees. And um, the the two, I'll just briefly describe these two proposals. One was to, um, and this is work that's been done by Kwame Forbes, who's a um, who's a postback scholar at UNC. Um, so he he and I have been working to create a function to help people with bulk RNA seq expression data um, connect their data to single cell data sets that are on Bioconductor. So there, a number of people have processed single cell data sets and then made them available within Bioconductor. So it's easy to kind of download those and get the, the single cell counts in your, in your R session. And so we just wrote, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not theoretically complicated, but just some bridging tools to help those people be aware of those data sets. And then they, you know, they can make a choice based on like, okay, you have some human data. So here's some human single cell RNA-seq data sets. And they can then pull them down and then like look at, you know, for example, uh, a differentially expressed gene in your bulk data, like what cell types is that expressed in, in some other single cell data set. So that was one of these uh, proposals from this CZI. And then the other one is something um, we're still working, we're still in the early stages of development. It's um, software for generating uh, this like null set of genomic features. So um, I guess if people are familiar with bed tools, there's a, there's a tool within bed tools called shuffle, which will move the features around in the genome so that you can compute. If you're, if you're computing like an overlap statistic, you might want to know, well, what if we just shuffled the features around, how many overlaps would we have then? And that you can then, you know, if you do that a bunch of times, you might get a null distribution of the number of overlaps. So, um, we, we were within Bioconductor, there are also packages for doing this, for permuting features, um, coming up with like a permuted distribution of features. And we're just trying to make uh, a little more options on how those features can be distributed. So like m nearly everyone allows there to be an excluded list. Like you don't want to put features on the centromere. You don't want to put them, you know, there's certain places you don't want to place features. That's, um, but then Additionally, we're looking at two aspects. One is that features tend to be clustered next to each other. So there's some theory, statistical theory from uh, Peter Bickle and others from Berkeley on, um, on sampling blocks of data. 
So that's called a block bootstrap. If you grab blocks of data and it's been used in time series really effectively to generate like artificial time series is to grab blocks of a time series. So they showed that you could do that for genomic inference and that's really uh, has some nice properties. Um, and then another aspect that we're looking into for generating these null feature sets is controlling for covariates. So you might want to go look at some background distribution of features, but matching uh, with respect to a certain number of covariates like GC content or gene density or something like that. So it's not the, the second idea. It's not a, it's not a whole package that does everything, but it hopefully will just be like a modular package that sits within a bigger framework using other packages that helps you do enrichment analysis. I can't help but notice that although you said there's not enough funding to support existing software, what you've been talking about is like writing new code, new software. <laughs> yeah. So it's not maintenance. Um, you still have to get the award. <laughs> so you still have to like come up with some new ideas. Um, well, they you know, they were, they were interested in, in helping people who have, you know, who have created successful software to, to extend it. And, and I have had troubles, you know, sometimes publishing papers. I, you know, I, you, you extend something and then it could be rejected because it's, it's not sufficiently novel. So like, I think that aspect is is really helpful to give you a little cover to to say, well, I'm, I'm, we're extending this work, um, but we're we're not saying it's brand new, um, and it's going to enhance the features that already exist in this software. I just mentioned another great thing about this program is that they're also they're now focused. They have another RFA for increasing diversity and inclusion in bioinformatics, which I think is so important and so getting um, uh, more representation of people from, un, let's say, underrepresented backgrounds is kind of a catch-all term. But basically, you know, we do, we need to, we all need to kind of do our best to help uh, increase that. And, and they now have some uh, new RFA for proposals that will, will try to increase diversity. Cool. And uh, to wrap this up, do you have anything else you wanted to talk about or maybe talk about what you are up to these days? Sure. Um, yeah. So just briefly, I think I've tried to diversify lab interests. And when I got to UNC, there were the, the genetics department where I'm also I'm co-listed in the genetics department. And they, they have really strong, um, a lot of uh, uh, investigators with QTL data sets. So one of my, you know, outside of RNA-seq, one of my areas where I've been trying to uh, do more methods development is in um, eQTL and the integration of EQTL with GWAS. So I guess, yeah, my the latest the, my latest thing that I've been devoting a lot of time is a, a Mendelian randomization method called MR locus, which helps to within a locus try to estimate the effect that a gene has on a downstream GWAS trait. So, but there's also again like there's so many methods. There's a lot of really great methods that are coming online right now to do that same task. So, you know. There's a lot of other other great tools to look at there. Well, Mike, um, you've been very generous with, with your time, and uh, it's great to have you on. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks so much, Roman. This has been a great pleasure. Mm -hmm.